0: Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we're nearly six months into the crisis of coronavirus and it's time to take stock of what governments have done to our civil liberties not just what are the restrictions and the things that we've lost along the way, but where does it leave it? Where will it leave us as we go into 2021? Will we ever get back to the freedoms that we're meant to enjoy in our democracy? We'll also be looking at some new legislation in Victoria, the uh, much-discussed omnibus bill, which could actually make things even worse. Uh, And we'll be talking about the role of policing uh, in that context as well. Uh, We'll also be looking at, uh, speaking of laws in Victoria, The amazing prospect that industrial manslaughter laws introduced by the Andrews government, similar to those that operate in Queensland uh, and are soon to operate in Western Australia, could actually see the Premier and the head of his department be two of the first people charged under their own legislation. How bizarre would that be? Uh, So we'll be looking at that because there's more at stake than just the pandemic and civil liberties. There's all sorts of things for the future of Australia tied up with that. Um, we'll be talking about all that, plus our usual books and culture segment. Uh, To help us do it, I have, of course, with me my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Chris, good to see you, if only on Zoom. Uh, And because we are talking civil liberties today, it is my uh, great pleasure uh, to bring into the studio the author of uh, many of the IPA's landmark works on civil liberties and legal rights, uh, author of the annual Legal Rights Report, Uh, None other than research fellow, Morgan Begg. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Great to have you. And, um, yeah, so, Chris, where do we start with civil liberties? Have we got any left?
1: (laughs)
2: Where don't we start, Scott? It is remarkable to um, just reflect on the sorts of civil liberties constraints that have been imposed on us over the last six months, um, that uh, some of them just go in com- completely unnoticed. So as I was preparing to discuss this, so th- there are the obvious ones, right? So in in Victoria, we've had the curfew, um, and we should talk about that. Um, possibly we've also had mask mandates. Um, but it's things like um, uh, the quarantine rules. Now, I actually think that the quarantine um, uh, rules have probably been one of the more effective public health measures, but it has also involved mandatory locking people up for 14 days in hotel rooms under the ward of the state. So what I thought is we might just start by stepping back. Morgan, the question that I want to ask you is, I mean, so, so I've spent most of my career arguing In defense of civil liberties for the expansion of civil liberties and so much of your work at the ipa has been focused on civil liberties and rule of law issues what do you think we've learned about civil liberties or the politics of civil liberties during this pandemic
1: yeah good question i think um i think the first lesson to take is that in our institutions in particular uh the 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 support or the uh the idea of civil liberties is built on very fragile ground um, and the speed with which they were completely discarded um, was frankly shocking. Uh, and you could, you could make an argument that, well, based in the early, earliest stages of the pandemic, um, the government needed to take swift action, um, but as the, 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 the quote unquote crisis has gone on, the restrictions have actually become more obscene. Um, and, and, and more invasive so um, we, we've developed rules about curfews we've developed rules about mandatory mask usage in all situations outside of your house. Um, when, when
0: you say institutions Morgan what are the institutions that you normally would look to to be defend, stout defenders of civil liberties to at least even if you know on judgment on balance you have to acquiesce Mm. in restrictions, but you would expect it to be a painful process Mm. and and civil liberties not easily offered up. What were the institutions you would normally look to um, to see our civil liberties defended?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, civil society groups, uh, the community uh, would... You would hope uh, rise up uh, in skepticism. Um, aside from only a few groups, including the IPA, that hasn't really occurred. Um, and I, I mean, frankly, I'm I'm romantic enough about the uh, the idea of parliament uh, and the institutions of democracy that I think that well, you uh, are old-fashioned, yeah. <laughs> you know, against against obviously all you know observable data from recent history. Um, that. There would be enough uh, of that tradition built in to, you know, the civil service and to Parliament and the courts um, that there would be enough um, enough of that built in to stop a lot of this from happening. But that hasn't happened. It's um, those those traditions have clearly been forgotten, mm. um, and well, this is where we are now.
0: And and this is in a context where, uh, say, the Victorian Parliament, uh, similar to. Uh, other parliaments uh, around the English-speaking world. We have a Charter of Rights and Liberties, I think it's called, mm. um, similar to, the, say, the Canadian Rights model. and responsibilities, not liberties. Rights though. and responsibilities. <laughs> uh, that's right, there's no yeah. liberties in Victoria. <laughs> um, so in in a sense, there's, there's this formal structure. Mm. It's like, oh, well, yes, our rights are
1: protected. Look, there's a Charter of Rights. It's written down. It's, it's codified. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not – that's – I mean – Arguably, that just makes it worse because then people uh, can just say, "Oh, look, there it is; it's all sorted. We've given it to you." <laughs> it's like the,
2: it, it's like, um, uh, the when, when you pass parliament, uh, pass legislation through the Commonwealth Parliament, you need to get it um, tested against the human rights test to see whether it's consistent with our human rights obligations. Mm. Now. All that happens is the Human Rights Committee puts up a report Hmm. and then they say, look, look, definitely not. I mean, this violates all this is, the list of human rights. And the parliament just goes, oh, thanks for chipping in. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. We'll be passing this legislation. (laughs) Um, And that has been something really striking because the Labor Party in Victoria has been traditionally very proud Hmm. of the human rights um, legal infrastructure that it's built um, uh, over the last couple of decades. Um, so much so that they would use, uh, I I've been involved in debates about human rights legislation for, for some time, and you very often will hear it demonstrating how successful it's been in states like Victoria. So this is why we should have it at a Commonwealth level. This is why we should have a Bill of Rights or mm. some human rights instruments and so forth. Um, and the casual ease at which the um, government has just, you know, given up on that has been... Um, I don't know whether I'm surprised, but it's still pretty striking.
0: Yeah, yeah. and uh, and out of that sort of the the left tradition uh, of uh, protection of human rights, I mean, we had the um, the notable case recently where um, uh, Julian Burnside, high profile QC and uh, um, self styled campaigner for human rights um, and president uh, of Liberty Victoria, still I think the um, uh, the organisation supposedly devoted to civil liberties, you know, sort of a Australian equivalent of the uh, ACLU. Um, they went to him for a comment about the fact that the police were now setting up surveillance units around suburban parks in Melbourne to see whether people were gathering in groups of more than two um, uh, because, you know, extra closed-circuit cameras. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, oh, that's OK. That seems pretty sensible. <laughs> And um, yeah. even even Liberty Victoria had to actually dissociate diso- yeah. themselves, but it's sort of like that's that's the passivity we've seen, mm. and um, and it's only been occasional outbreaks, and and uh, as has been our want. i I, I'm, I think the age in the Guardian. Uh, to be fair, um, have called some of this out. Mm. There was, uh, say, one story on the incredible level of fines, which I might get you to talk about in a sense. You know, $1,600 fines, you know, 99% of the... I've made that number up. ..of fines levied, you know, for breaching regulations around Australia have been in Victoria. Mm. Um, Mostly, you know, in suburbs uh, full of uh, disadvantaged people um, for whom $1,673... You know, is a hell of a lot of money. There were household, you know, or parties being broken up with like ten, twenty thousand dollars worth of fines collectively. Uh, I remember five kids playing cricket in the first lockdown, uh, all got fined seventeen hundred bucks. Um, and then the government on the weekend has just put it up to five thousand yeah. dollars. I mean, how how does how does that fine idea even measure come into this, Morgan?
1: Yeah, that um, it, it goes to the heart of the question about the proportionality. Of the response, I think um, there's, I think there's a, there's a, a perception that, that I've noticed, which is that the state of emergency and combined with the, the, a lot of the rhetoric from the government about people who are doing otherwise normal, everyday, lawful things, um, but characterising that as being the wrong thing, quote unquote, mm. which we've heard so many times before, um, it's definitely led to. Uh, policing, which is, I would say, excessive. Um, we're seeing potential abuses of power, potential potentially unlawful decisions about the the exercise of these emergency powers, um, and I think that that part that the the arbitrary setting of pe- uh, fines of penalties uh, feeds feeds into that loop of, um, you know. Treating everyday normal activities as wrong, giving Mm. them a moral uh, judgment about um, this being the wrong thing to do, uh, and this feeds into policing, and it it just keeps going around. Let's take a concrete example. Yeah.
0: So, so let's say there's limits on how many people can gather, Mm. um, and the rules change all the time, and different, and this has been different states. Uh, have had these. So let's say you saw a gathering which was clearly in breach of that. You know, I could understand why a police officer might then come along and um, and say, you know, you clearly breached the law. Mm. Uh, there's too many people in this group. Um, but what we're actually seeing uh, is police are just walking through parks, along beaches, just stopping everyone and demanding yeah. ID. So okay, there's only two people there. I'm going to demand your ID and find out whether you're from the same household. Mm. So this is there's no observable suspicion of an offence being committed. They're, you know they're wearing masks, they're socially distanced from other groups, um, and uh, actually I might throw this one to Chris because this is this is the great conservative argument against libertarians. Um, and, you know, you've, you've been the subject of conservative ire on many, many occasions, capital C conservatives over the years, Chris. It's like, well, why would you be upset with, you know, police stopping and asking for your ID or strip and search or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, um, because if you're doing nothing wrong, then it'll be OK. Um, why should we be concerned <laughs> about transitioning to a culture in which police just can stop anyone in the street or in a park or on a beach and demand that sort of information.
2: Scott, I, I know you self-describe as a conservative, um, and I know that you don't think what you just said. <laughs> because the, the scenario you have described, and the scenario that we live in, is a basic affront to human dignity. The idea that it would be assumed that if you are outside walking around, it, would be a, it, it is assumed by the state that you are not um, uh, doing so lawfully. That That is a, that's not a liberal thing. That's mm. not a libertarian thing. That's a um, human society thing. This is a non-totalitarian dictatorship thing. Um, but there are, uh, uh, as you were talking, I, I was thinking um, uh, that what we have is a scenario where there's a very, very high certainty or high likelihood that you'll be caught because you, uh, if you do something wrong, because the cops, um, certainly in a lot of areas, are so um, rigorous, shall we say? Um, but at the same time, we've got these incredibly high fines. Now, in the economics, or the in the economics of of crime, they talk about two choices: you can either have a really low likelihood of being caught and a really high penalty, or you can have a low penalty and a high likelihood of getting caught. Right now, so and, and most of the evidence suggests that the, the certainty of being caught is a greater deterrence to crime than the penalty for, um, uh, for committing that crime. Um, so, so that's where the, where the evidence suggests. But now what we have in Victoria is, A, you're very likely to be caught. And when you're caught, you're going to get an incredibly punishingly high fine.
0: Oh, yes, uh, Chris, and on on the subject of punishingly high fines, what we've seen is a pattern actually we've talked about before the pan- pandemic as well, which is the tendency of um, authoritarian governments in Australia to constantly increase fines as almost a substitute for justice and policing. So, um, and uh, this has happened again. So we had these $1,700 fines. There's an outbreak of... Uh, COVID-19 in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, which has come about because of uh, 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 extended families getting together, breaking the regulations, the government said, we're not going to charge them because we want them to come forward with their list of contacts. Uh, Okay, so we've we've got these outrageous fines, but we're going to be very... we're, We're actually not going to use them in exactly the circumstances where presumably they might apply... But then having done that and and said we're not going to apply them because we want people to come forward and we've got to build a relationship of trust in the community and we've got brochures and community languages and, you know, we've got community workers and social workers and all that sort of thing. A week later it's like, okay, we're going to get rid of the curfew and we're going to come to why that happened and we're going to do a few other things in Victoria but we're going to increase the fine to $5,000. I mean, you go to any other country in the world, the fines are in the hundreds of dollars. So it's, it's what what is this thing about the the headline value on the fine?
2: Yeah, there's a there's a throughout the panic we've seen a sort of health version of law and order that seems to be working really effectively in Victoria politically for um, the Labor Party. Um, but this it's a analogue of conservative law and order where you can never have large enough fines. Mm. You can never have enough um, uh, penalties, you can never have enough, you know, the two strikes and you're out, three strikes and you're out systems. This is a labor version of that in the service of public health. Um, uh, And they're obviously responding to the same incentive structure that um, conservative law and order um, uh, politics is driven by, but just for a totally different thing now. So look, that, that just might be an interesting political observation. But what it does tell you is that the next time the Labour Party or even just the left in general, argue about overfining, argue about excessive penalties, argue about excessive police, complain about conservative law and order politics, Well, they will be basking in a massive hypocrisy Mm. from what we have seen over the last six months. The idea that Daniel Andrews, and and this ends up being a bit bit of a whinge, as, as you know, Scott, and it's hard not to whinge. And again, we're in Victoria. It's hard not to whinge about how just rubbish it is right now. But the idea that Daniel Andrews every single day stands up and lists people who've done bad things. Uh, and we found this person who was driving from Morabin to to Pascovale, and and he just said he wanted a chicken sandwich. So we find him five thousand I mean, dollars. just just. Constant rolling sequence of here's all the criminals we caught. Yeah, I mean, it, why it, do they march them out in front of us and we can see? It would be yeah.
0: like Duterte in the Philippines, where he gets they, they pull the drug lords up to the press conferences. Why don't they actually? Why doesn't Andrews just go the whole hog and bring him into the press
2: conference? I know, I want to. <laughs> we'll throw see the rocks at them, you know? <laughs> I, I want to. get my full two minutes' her, her pay. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, and um, th- and this is why John Ruskin called it a police state. Five months ago, and everyone went, oh, John, that's a bit strong. Now everyone's calling it a police state. Because <laughs> this is the thing. It's, everything's um, uh, it's for the po- convenience of the police and, as you say, backed up by this political dynamic where it's extremely attractive for um, uh, the, the uh, police health state apparatus and the ALP um, uh, to, to go down that road.
2: But let's let's talk about that. So the fork, the convenience of um, law and order. Um, so obviously, we we're no longer under a curfew, which is really exciting, or would be more exciting if I was able to do anything outside the hours. Um, anyway. Um, uh, but this is a this, this has been treated as oh Oh, well, they're getting rid of the curfew because the public health advice changed. Well, it's not really like that. So Morgan, why don't you explain for us, the, um, uh, the the politics of a curfew.
1: Um, so the the curfew uh, was introduced. The 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 rationale, the basis for the the curfew was was never adequately explained. I would say from the beginning, um, it was. Uh, and I think it's uh, widely accepted. Now, I think uh, actually the, the government actually admitted um, after a few days of not being able to decide who was responsible for uh, introducing the idea of a curfew that it was actually... Um, it was for the purpose of uh, making the enforcement of the directions easier. Um, and this actually uh, exposes the the idea of the curfew to massive legal problems because... Um, the emergency powers under the Public Health and Wellbeing Act can only be um, used uh, to issue directions which are for the purpose of reducing or eliminating a serious risk to public health uh, in the community. Um, That's not the purpose of why the curfew was introduced. It was for uh, enforcement. Convenience. Convenience of Um, of enforcement. And so, uh, and as this, um, I, I think we've seen that, the prospect of legal challenges being brought forward—we've seen so, uh, so there's a restaurateur in, yep.
0: um, uh, in, in on the Mornington Peninsula who has actually lodged legal action. Yes,
1: there. yes, exactly. And and then lo and behold, um, a few days go by, and the curfew's completely dropped. So I'm sure there's but, but no connection, no, no connection. connection at all <laughs> with the pending legal action. Yeah. yeah. So um, and 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 so now, now there's uh, no curfew is in place, um, and and that's open open book. And,
0: and we, we wonder how many other of the measures... Exactly. How many other restrictions on civil liberties, to come back to our theme for the day, yeah uh, also had nothing to do with, with health care. Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, um, issuing uh, uh, rules about mandatory mask usage in situations where you are no prospect of encountering another person, say, if you're, you know... Um, not within a square kilometre of another person, uh, that raises, you know, the fact that the direction is that broad raises questions about the lawfulness of the direction. And this actually came up um, on the, you know... uh, Premier's daily sermon Pre- on Monday.
2: Premier, Premier's daily chat.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it was Rachel Baxendale. Usually, she's mm. the, she's the lone voice in the uh, the press gallery in Melbourne, uh, challenging the premier. Um, and she and she was asking a question in regards to, oh, is it really reasonable for mask rules masks to be mandatory in situations where uh, you know you're in a rural area and there's no one within a square kilometer of you? And Andrew said. Oh, well, that's rather esoteric. That's an esoteric question, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. uh, and I think that reveals a lot about the, the, what the premier, um, what his view of the idea of law is, um, because that question is that—that's fundamental. Uh, it goes to the heart of you know the the limits of the government's power to issue directions, uh, the 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 rationale, the justification for why it would. In, uh, impose such strict rules, um, but I don't think. Uh, this is just personal opinion, but I don't think the premier sees the law. I think he sees he sees this entire experience as power, hmm. um, and exercising the power to their fullest extent.
2: But uh, but if you, so, so let me <laughs> let me try to make the strongest argument for the way he's thinking at the moment. Yeah, because I think what he's doing is um, he, he he he's got a problem. He knows that we have to get rid of COVID, um, uh, rightly or wrongly. That's what he knows deep in deep in his heart. Um, he sees the power of the state. Um, he imposes all the laws as or all the restrictions as he can that would achieve that goal as quickly as possible. And you have these pesky reporters then turning around and asking him to justify every little bit. And we know why. We again, we know why the mask rule. Is um, uh, is everywhere because it would be way too complicated to have it, um, or w- be way too hard to enforce if it was only when you were within one point five meters of someone. It's again, it's to make these things easier to enforce. Now, this this goes to the myopic attitude that a lot of people have had to the pandemic, where the sole um, uh, the sole target, the sole goal has to be um, to, to eliminate the virus in Australia at least um, uh, but but that's clearly what he's thinking and when you hand over the um, effective rulemaking or effective legislative power to the public health officer under a state of emergency what else are you gonna get like what 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 possible regime would we expect we haven't handed over power to the civil liberties yeah. officer we haven't handed power of it's the Good Legislation Committee, we hand it over to the public health officials.
0: Yeah, who, are health nut, who we always call health Nazis for a reason. I want to come back to Morgan's point because um, remember, everyone listening, this podcast is brought to you by the IPA. Uh, if you're not already a member, join or donate. And one of the reasons why we've decided to have a podcast where we try and take topical events and go a bit deeper is for moments like this. What you just said, Morgan, I think is very, very important the Premier's perception of what the law is. Because mm. this is this is what makes Liberals and Conservatives different because we believe that the law is more than just what it says on the statute book. Um, uh, many years ago when I did a Master's in Law, I, I studied um, China, uh, constitutions around the world. And in, in China, they have this wonderful contrast um, uh, because the thing the Chinese fear most is, is anarchy they want is, 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 is order and law, you know, far, I think it is. I just butchered the pronunciation. Can't, can't speak man. <laughs> um, but the point is, so there's a thing called legalism in China and legalism is seen to be this great philosophy that good, that is at the heart of good government. What legalism means is whatever the state does, it must be backed by law. But that's it. Mm. If you want to jail half a million Uyghurs, that's okay. So long as there's actually a law... Which empowers it because we don't want anarchy.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, as this is as opposed to a natural law tradition that we are born with inalienable rights, to quote the Americans or or similar things. Um, uh, Mr. Mr. Chris John Lockberg over there could probably yep. do this. Life better. Liberty and Estate. State. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Uh, you can do this better than I can. But this is at the heart of it. The this is a philosophy of the law, is what I say it
1: is. Yeah.
0: And 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 this is by the way. Um, uh, I should do a nodding thing that this is. Uh, not limited to Victoria, it's just where the worst example is. So the fact that at the moment um, Australians cannot leave, even though they have passports, just can't leave this country. I mean, it's like bloody North Korea. Um, uh, but, yeah, this, this is at the heart of it. This is what I've always found so terrifying about the thing. There is no cognitive dissonance between, well, here are your rights and I feel bad about these restrictions I'm going to put, ha- put on them. There is none of that, none at all.
2: Yeah, is the choice? Is the choice? So, uh, is the choice if we go down the path of lockdown? Is it just entangled in that that we're going to have to have heavy civil liberties restrictions? Is once you've made the decision to um, eliminate the virus through a lockdown strategy, are we just inevitably going to deal with this sort of absurdity? Or was there a was there a medium? half as you see it Morgan. I, how do you how do you think about that I, I i just wonder what you would do if you were let's say let's say um they had a spill of daniel andrews right now and you're advising the next labor premier uh not to shut down the lockdown but just to fix it up what what would you do
1: oh uh good question um i think Question without notice. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. No, no, so that's just, and fair enough. See how you um, go. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think I've been troubled uh, by this—the idea that there's some kind of uh, binary. Uh, you either do effectively nothing, or you do everything. <laughs> uh, and which the, the I, I and we have chosen. everything. We, we have chosen <laughs> everything, um, or and most I, I would say for the most part, state Western countries. Uh, around the world, with a few exceptions, have gone you know, close to everything. Uh, they've definitely favoured that. And, of course, there, there was absolutely from the start, I think uh, there was a, a midway, a middle path through this. Um, the, we knew, I think we knew from the start, I remember uh, reading reports about this uh, from before the lockdowns were imposed here, that um, that the, the, the virus was most... Um, uh, had the serious, most serious consequences against the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions. Um, it, it was not impossible then to draft um, regulations, directions, uh, which were effectively limited to uh, hospitals, aged care facilities, um, people that were infected and people that were close contacts of people that were infected. Um, and then... To leave, and then some. Some very, I mean, you could almost say, uh, for the rest of the population, to e- effectively issue guidance or mm. alerts and and a warning them uh, to exercise caution.
0: Yeah, and um, and and a proportion. The, the, the question you used the word proportionate before. Mm. Proportionate measures, and also proportionately enforced.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. As as
0: opposed to uh, you know the Zoe Bueller experience of. Um, uh, storming into someone's house. Yeah, and um, uh, the, the Victorian bar, by the way, pointed out that there's actually case law against you. You don't have to put people in handcuffs. Yeah,
1: exactly. No, no, that's right. And I, I I've argued uh, in the Spectator uh, Australia um, that I don't, I don't. In my opinion, I don't think that a crime of incitement even occurred. Uh, I, I don't think the Victoria Police even raised a prima facie case that there was you, an offence. We
2: should talk about that because it's possible that not all listeners have been following this case. Okay. Particularly closely. Do you want to do you want to just explain that argument in the context?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so there
0: was they've been uh, arresting a lot of people for
1: incitement, yeah, quote unquote. Yeah, and I think um, the Victoria Police have taken a very very broad view of what incitement actually is, um, and so the the, the criminal offence of incitement is provided for in the Crimes Act, the Victorian Crimes Act, uh, and it has. Two elements uh, effectively. It's a person has to do something, uh, a communicate in some uh, a, an incitement uh, has to communicate to someone, um, uh, encouraging them to commit offen- commit an offense. Um, and the second element is someone actually needs to receive that communication and then be incited to do the offense. Um, and it's that it's that final phrase that's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and be. I don't <laughs> think, um, and I don't think that. Victoria Police got to that stage of determining whether someone had been incited uh, before they arrested. It's like they've they've laid the arrest, um, they've laid charges, and now they're going to go to the stage of determining whether uh, someone had been incited to do the offence. So that was problem number one for me. But the second problem... Um, so,
2: so I just want to dwell on that because, yeah. um in the classic example of John Stuart Mill's um, uh, idea about freedom of speech, it's fine to yell that a corn dealer, so a bread bread dealer is starving the poor, but it's not fine to yell it in front of the bread dealer, the corn dealer's house where when there's a giant mob. And so so we discussed this in freedom of speech theory. But it's also a really point important, important caveat that it's not just you stand in front of the mob. Screaming that the corn dealer is starving the poor. The mob has to do something yeah, about it. Yeah. like you got to you got to be able to lead them exactly for the incitement. Yeah, too.
1: so so the <laughs> Victoria Police took the have apparently seemingly taken the view that well incitement uh, can be uh, the the offence can be affected when uh, you simply just say something and that someone somewhere could potentially commit a crime because of it yeah uh but this is it's actually a serious criminal offense and that's not that's not no that's nowhere near good enough there's uh,
2: also there's also an element of specificity that you need in most incitement offenses too hmm. so yeah it, it can't be just um kill all men right yeah that's not and that's not incitement even if men uh, eventually killed, even if someone—it's—it's it's just too general. Yeah. it's got to be like kill but this specific person. It's
1: a high bar. There is a threshold, and yeah. they haven't—they've—they they haven't demonstrated that that threshold's been met. Now, the se- I just—I'll mention the second, and this is probably a more serious point, which is that uh, in order to prove an incitement offence, um, you have to be a person has to be incited to commit an offence. Um, but I think, I think it's likely that the health directions. Uh, breaching a health direction isn't a crime. Uh, the health directions are, <laughs> oh, they're, they're, they're regulatory uh, administrative rules. Uh, by mid-level bureaucrats. Yeah, and, and, this is, and it's important that they're not described as crimes because uh, that would mean that the chief health officer, by his own discretion, would be able to create new crimes um, at his whim. Uh, which is that's obviously that's an absurd and, that's well, a Well, it's only absurd to us. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, if we're otherwise in a police state, mm. I mean if that if that gets waived through by the courts, well then we we
1: do have so, government by edict. Yeah, that and that's so, so if what that we're talking about here with is sort of, of a,
2: a incitement <laughs> to commit regulatory infractions, yeah. Is
1: that? Yeah, yes. So that, that, that,
2: that would be... Uh, in, incitement to fill
0: out the form incorrectly <laughs> as provided for in said regulations, you know.
2: It, it, exactly, exactly. So can you imagine then applying that standard to all the people who say that we should fill out the census with, you know, say that your religion is Jedi or something along those lines, um, or decline to answer certain questions? Again, regulatory infractions. Mm.
0: Mate, you're going to jail for 100 years. Speaking of yeah. people going to jail... <laughs> A prospect that has people um, either horrified or, or applauding um, has been raised uh, with regard to um, occupational health and safety and industrial manslaughter laws in Victoria. Um, this has been an article of faith amongst uh, the union movement and therefore the ALP uh, to introduce laws regarding industrial manslaughter because uh, it's not enough to have occupational health and safety laws um, we must be able to jail chief executives and board directors um, and impose all kinds of liabilities above and beyond the usual tests of uh, of due diligence and, and so on. And um, uh, Robert Gottliebson, uh, co- amongst others, covered this uh, by saying that uh, now, as we've watched the uh, Board of Inquiry progress in Victoria, the COAT Inquiry... Uh, and we've seen the failure of the hotel quarantine, which has led to over 700 deaths, uh, that this could well fit within the remit of the very legislation that the Labor government itself passed. That rather than what they had in mind was uh, chief executives of those evil corporations being carted off um, uh, to jail... Um, uh, for for an offence under this legislation, the very first people uh, that could be charged would be the premier, the secretary of the Department of Health, the secretary, premier and cabinet, and so on and so forth. And um, and there's been a letter go to uh, the occupational health and safety um, uh, body, the uh, work cover Authority in Victoria, um, as you as you're enabled to do uh, to say you must look at this at these possible breaches. So. Um, i got to say, social media lit up when, the, when, the, when this was so, pointed out. Yeah. It,
2: so this is a really interesting one. Um, so it's important for listeners to understand that these are novel laws. So they only, I believe, came into uh, power on the 1st of July 2020. So in fact, literally, given how most of our businesses have been shut down, non-essential Industries have been shut down. Literally, very few country, companies have been able to be covered by this in, <laughs> in any in any real practice. Um, we're not the only um, state to have industrial manslaughter laws. Other as some other states do. What's really interesting about this, in, in fact, one and, is and that just to
0: interrupt the, by the way, before the last state election, we said the IPA put out a paper saying, "Don't do it." Don't do not <laughs> well, do not follow Queensland's, lead, you know, this is yeah, yeah, terrible yet legislation. Yet another,
2: yet another lesson there. Yep. Um, <laughs> um, but this is a particularly interesting um, instance of industrial manslaughter because it quite explicitly covers members of parliament and members of the government. In fact, as it was going through parliament um, uh, uh, late last year, the government actually said. Um, that the premier ministers and departmental secretaries are covered by this new offence. Now, this is relevant, because the council assisting the inquiry into the hotel quarantine failure has um, said that the um, that the failure itself was responsible for the 768 deaths um, uh, that at that time had been um, uh, uh, had had come off the back of the second wave. Um, so the question for you, Morgan, is, um, is this a bit pie in the sky? Um, is this the sort of thing that gets us all hot under the collar but isn't likely to go anywhere, or is this a real thing?
1: Um, well, it's interesting what you said about the, um, the government actually said at the time that it applied to uh, ministers and the departments because I do recall... Um, that the, the opposition moved amendments in the Legislative Council to make that explicit within the legislation. Uh, and I believe those proposed amendments were negative, so they they, they weren't eventually included. Um, and so... I have,
2: a, I have a quote from Gail Tierney, yep. the Minister for Training and Skills at the time in the Legislative Council. I may have stolen that yeah. from one of the many columnists that have been writing about it in the last two days. I think I may have stolen it from Janet Albertson's column. Um, I oh. hope she gives me a... She discovers that I can't remember. <laughs>
1: um, no, that's uh, that, that's very interesting, and that's strong support for the idea that the laws do apply to the state, um, and that was that was a concern at the time, um, and I mean that that should be a concern that question because we've seen in this state uh, throughout 2020 that there's been two Victorias we've had, you know, the the private. Sector which has been completely smashed and obliterated by the shutdown and the restrictions, uh, but the public sector has been able to effectively immunise itself from uh, all the rules, so to, and, speak. And yeah, possible, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, so to speak. Uh, and so, um, so that's that's very interesting. I, I'd be very interested to see you know if it if it reached the court, the judicial stage, where the uh, the, the courts usually they should treat they should. Uh, those yeah, should. parliamentary statements as having. Quite a heavy Some weight. They're a guide. I must say, and, and this this might be my own misunderstanding of the law, um, and I'd be happy if uh, um, anyone who does have better knowledge contacted me to correct me. But my understanding of in- industrial manslaughter laws is that you it's it's in situations where an employer has a duty of care to an employee, uh, and then the the, the the employee is killed. Um, as a result, and and I'm not sure if I'm not sure if that uh, what um, what the the people arguing for it now to be to be used in this way whether that meets that definition or whether there's provisions in the in the I, act which I, do extend. I, 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 dare,
0: I dare say it turns on the fact that in hotel quarantine, the the hotels actually became workplaces under the control of the state. Yeah, okay. I dare I dare say that's what it, I mean. Ken Phillips, the great Ken Phillips. Um, um, has been a friend of the IPA yeah. for a long ter- time is running this. I, de- I dare say that, that would be on what And on I definitely, terms.
1: I defer to, I mean, he, he is uh, an expertise in yeah. uh, his expertise. I, in I his mean, so so why, don't we
2: ask, why don't we ask the principal question? Yep. Should they be liable if that's the case? If, um, regardless of what the legislation says, mm. should you be holding government officials liable for, um, for casualties of their decision-making?
1: I definitely think that there should be um, a right to uh, to bring a claim against the government um, for you know mismanagement of this kind, which has these kinds of consequences. Um, I, I'm I'm a I mean the, the IPA's history is that we've opposed mm. industrial manslaughter laws, and that's for good reason. Mm. Uh, the the idea of vicarious criminal liability um, where yeah, uh, a, a director or a, a board member of a company would be uh, put in jail uh, hmm. for for an action which th- they might not have been present for, um, which they might which, not, which was done. Might, in, they they in, have no which knowledge could have been
0: done in contravention of of the very uh, policies. And well, that's right. that I mean, they'd authorised.
1: Um, so I, but that said. Um, If we are to have these laws, then they should apply equally to the government. I have have absolutely no discomfort in saying that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in a a, a policy sense, these are are bad laws specifically for industrial manslaughter. And generally, I mean, I I can't believe it's come to this actually, Chris, because, you know, I worked in politics 30 years ago. And and um, people know my interests in the matter, and I don't know how many times people have said to me over the years, you know, so and so should be in jail for what they did. Kevin Rudd should have been jailed for um, the the uh, The the bats, bats, pink bats. I mean, four people were killed, Um, and I always said, you know, half in jest. Oh, you know, good God, man! um, If you start jailing politicians for incompetence, the the entire system will break down. But it's only half in jest. Mm Um, because, uh, you know, we we meant to have mechanisms of accountability other than leaving it to courts, you know, when you, and, and it creates terrible incentives, you know, as we've seen in this code inquiry. I mean, why, why is it that we've had 16 witnesses all pointing at everybody else, saying it wasn't me, don't know nothing, can't remember, don't remember that email, no, nobody told me? Well, Gottliebson's point is because they're shit scared that they're going to go to jail, I mean, this, so so it's almost like, you know, this is why in South Africa they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission instead of, instead of just jailing, you know, the, all the National Party figures because it's like it creates a terrible incentive and doesn't get you anywhere. And um, whereas civil liability and and um, uh, actually gives you the opportunity for the for the state collectively to be punished for mm. its actions. They should be liable, just like. Um, you know, uh, I saw a police shooting in America, $20 million liability claim for Brianna Taylor, I think it was. No, no, sorry, it was a different one. Um, That's appropriate, whereas every time you say, I'm going to start charging the chief of police for anything that happens on his or her watch, you've you've created a terrible incentive, you've bogged the courts down, the unions get involved, it's just the whole system breaks down. But wouldn't it be ironic if this terrible law yes. actually did put well something you can't in jail. spell
1: manslaughter without laughter and there'd be no small amount of humor in it <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean I,
2: I like the way um you thought through that scott because ultimately it's we we delegate to daniel andrews and the rest of the parliament to make decisions on our behalf we've chosen to do that um uh, and then when they make decisions um, the the answer is not to jail them, <laughs> um, regardless. But the answer may well be, well, you know, it's it's our it's our state, it's it's our government. We are stakeholders in that government, and if we've delegated to someone who makes a catastrophic decision that causes real harm that can be expressed in a monetary sense through the court system, then you know, unfortunately, that's on us. We will have to pay that. Um, that's a quite that's a quite principled way of thinking. Well, yes, we should absolutely be able to sue the state for damages in that context. Um, but, you know, personally penalising Daniel Andrews outside the ballot box, which I'm looking forward to doing, mm. um, uh, is, is, is um, it's more interesting. It's an interesting theoretical thing. I, I wonder whether um, uh, it's it's all a bit pie in the sky. Uh, but it does show you some of the absurdities that these industrial manslaughter oh, laws yeah. can...
0: Uh, and we should point out too for anyone in, uh, for our WA listeners, uh, that the point has been made that similar legislation is proceeding through the WA Parliament, but they've they've woken up to this issue and they've decided to exclude the public sector.
1: Oh, that's that's nice. <laughs> yes. That's of great comfort to the people of Western Australia, I'm to, sure. To, to know that every,
0: <laughs> ev- everyone will be um, everyone will be liable except the politicians mm, and the, and yeah. and the public servants. Um, So we do look forward to that. We have come to that part of the show, I think, where we talk about our books and culture picks, what we've been reading, watching and listening to. Uh, Chris Berg, would you like to lead us off?
2: Yeah, sure. So I watched the new Netflix movie Enola Holmes. So um, based on a book by Nancy Springer, Enola Holmes is the sister of Sherlock Holmes and um, Mycroft Holmes. Uh, And the story is that she's basically been abandoned um, by her brothers to live with her mother. She's much younger. Then her brothers. Um, then her mother goes missing, and thus the great mystery begins. Where she um, she's she's young, she's sixteen or so, and she grows into become a um, or at least demonstrates the abilities to become a great detective like her brother. The the movie is it's good fun. I'm um, I'm not going to say it's going to win any great uh, awards for um, artistic quality, but it is in this. I know in, in the world of Netflix these days, they just They've got so much data about the what we want to watch, the style we want to watch it, the characters we want to see back. So they just crack them out formula by formula. And the quality ends up being fairly good. It's never interesting, but it's always fairly good. And it's is one of those. The thing I, the thing I wanted to, talk, to uh, talk about, though, is... Um, and and it, was actually,
0: it was actually made... I see that Millie Bobby Brown is listed as one of the producers.
2: Uh, oh, well... Yeah, yeah I, what is,
0: what is she? That she's that. like 18 and she's already got her own production company and <laughs> picking and choosing what's, what she's going to star in. So um, good luck to so, her. So,
2: so look, it, it is good and I don't want to denigrate it. I do, But the point I want to make, the point I want to make is, so a lot of people have complained that um, the Sherlock played by um, Henry Cavill who played um, Superman um, doesn't really feel much like Sherlock. I agree with that, but the worst violence done to the characters is the character of Mycroft Holmes. Mm. So Mycroft Holmes is, in my view, easily the best character in the Sherlock Holmes uh universe, I guess. Mm. Sherlock Holmes cinematic universe. Um <laughs> because he is smarter than his brother. He is better at solving crimes than his brother, but he couldn't be bothered and he's interested in politics and government. Um, so uh, doing some research for this, and I, I won't claim to have read all the Sherlock Holmes books, but doing some research. So Mycroft Holmes, it's very unclear in the original Sherlock books um, what his actual job is. So he mm. he may be just a very senior public servant. He may be a sort of Dominic Cummings sort of advisor to the prime minister type thing. They're, they're always really unclear about what he does. But he's incredibly clever. He knows where the bodies are buried. He's buried many of those bodies themselves. And he's the best character in that universe. And they treat him so poorly in this. And they, get, they make him just sort of just a smarmy, annoying brother when he's, he's so by far the best. Um, mm. If you recall back the, um, the, the Sherlock Holmes movies um, that were released a few years ago, he was played by, uh, he was played by Stephen Fry. Um, Mycroft was played by Stephen Fry. And that, that was genuinely good. Um, uh, yep. someone who exudes a form of intelligence and a form of connections. But anyway, so that's my whinge about that. It's still <laughs> a good show. You should watch it. Um, but, you know, they, they, they do very poorly to the best character in the world.
0: Fair comment. Yeah, yeah. no, it's... um, And they didn't quite tie up the loose ends of the story, as my 15-year-old keeps pointing out. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the, that is frustrating. The, the quest for the mother that was supposedly the propulsive force of the plot just... Sort of got wrapped up in five minutes when yeah, just turned Yeah, look, up, and, you know, and, but and anyway. there's also,
2: and this will annoy you, um, Morgan. There's a there's a fair bit of we've got to have some themes, some contemporary themes in mm. in the um in the movie. Uh, it's actually it's kind of about suffragettes, but then there's also a um a race in the suffragettes sub subplot. And <laughs> anyway, it just it, it it's messy.
1: It breaks. But, oh, no. I always find that breaks immersion. Um, you can't really get into it if, if it keeps pulling you out. I find in those. Those kind of movies triggered. So, yeah. Triggered, yeah. Must. Be trigger. A trigger warning must for conservatives. Be, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I must be a snowflake.
0: <laughs> um, I might go next because, once again, Chris,
2: I have a book.
1: I'm I'm so proud of you.
0: Uh, which oh dang, I forgot to bring it into the studio. Wait, let's do that thing. So. This is a book by Karl Ove Knausgaard, uh, who has written the uh, six-book series called My Struggle, which I've spoken about on the podcast before. But this is a book about uh, the, his uh, fellow Nor- Norwegian, the, uh, the artist Edvard Munch, who everybody knows, even if they don't know that they know this, because of his iconic painting, uh, The Scream, uh, with the guy holding his hands to his head and, um, and generally losing his mind. It's been much shared actually in Victoria recently, go figure. Um, This book is called So Much Longing in So Little Space The Art of Edvard Munch. And uh, Knausgaard is a great writer who admits he knows very little about art. Um, That would go. um, I'm neither of those, actually. No, I'm right, yes. (laughs) I'm not a great writer, and like him, I don't know much about art either. But he was um, called upon to create, uh, curate an exhibition of. Munch's works. It was a bit of a wheeze for a gallery who thought it'd be funny to put this famous Norwegian author in charge of uh, curating these works. And because it's Knausgard, he writes at length about how anxious this made him and how worried it was. And, you know, there's four pages on him getting a cup of coffee and lighting up a cigarette because that's Knausgard. But along the way, he did go and interview some people who did know something about art and uh, reflected on Munch, who is a very interesting guy Um, you know, uh, sort of late 19th century milieu that he came out of and he lived long enough to see the Germans invade Norway. Um, You know, his stuff like The Scream, which are almost like um, iconic works of modernity and anxiety and alienation, were all sort of in the earlier part of his career and for the last 30 or 40 years he just, you know, sat in his... Studio and 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 uh, and painted sometimes landscapes, sometimes people, but you know much less stressful themes. So I learned a lot about um, Munch, um, and through these interviews with actual true art critics and and other painters, I I learnt a lot more about the craft uh, and also that whole business of um, modern painting. Uh, I'd never even thought about the fact that if you look at the scream, your you, your eyes are drawn to this to the head uh, of the uh, the guy screaming. But it's actually a landscape. Like, he's actually standing on a pier and there's water. Yeah, he's standing on a pier. And yeah, there's yeah. water in the background and, and, yeah. um, and other people on the pier and there's a lighthouse. I think there's a lighthouse or something. And you can go and stand on the spot where he painted it. And so it's this experience, though, of most people would go and see that pier and that water and that landscape, whereas for Munch, uh, he was... He lived in his own head
2: so much. That that Existential just, horror in a lovely landscape environment. That's
0: <laughs> right. And it goes into, you know, he was it, tragically, it, <clears throat> his mother and his sister died of tuberculosis uh, when he was still a young man. Uh, he painted uh, those experiences. Um, uh, so he had the uh, the usual fill of issues. He, was an, he and his fellow artists were all terrible alcoholics and so on, but he... Um, uh, finished up getting out of all of that and and it finishes on a nice note too that when the uh, under the german occupation we know the term uh for someone who collaborates with the regime was actually because of a norwegian uh vidkun mm-hmm. Quisling who uh offered to run the um government of norway for the for the nazis um so it was a gentle sort of occupation and uh he can uh munch was allowed to continue painting um and he was invited to just join a society of artists you know the government was setting up because of its support for the arts sort of like an an australia council but under nazi occupation (laughs) and anyway it was very pleasing to read that munch told him to piss off so (laughs) he was having having none of that he was not a political operator but he was having none of that so good on him um so yeah, not a book for everyone, um, you've got to be into either Munch or Knausgaard, preferably both, um, but if you're just looking for something a little bit different, um, so much longing in so little space. Morgan.
1: Thanks Scott. Uh, so uh, my culture pick this week is a Netflix documentary uh, called The Social Dilemma, um, and it's a, it's a it's a documentary with elements of dramatization with narrative, um, which is I don't, I don't think the format really works. But they're trying something new, I guess. So that's uh, that's interesting. Um, but it's about the um, uh, the the design, the background of big tech and social media. So a lot of the voices in the documentary are. Um, a lot of key executives and uh, programmers and engineers who designed a lot of the features of social media apps and uh, in particular how you know, that how the algorithms work to um, maximize the monetization of those platforms um, and more than that um, also influence and, and sort of Change people's behaviors um, in, in order to um, meet that monetization goal and for some I, I for many many years I've stayed away from social media so I, for me it was quite informative about the background to, to how it actually works. Um, and the second half of the documentary I, I, I did I felt it wasn't as persuasive or interesting um, because it spends maybe 20 minutes. Uh, Trying to say something that could have been explained in two minutes, which is that um, because of the way social media works, people can effectively construct and design their own realities, um, their their own worldview, and because of that, we don't. It undermines our capacity as a society to have a shared set of values which binds together. Uh, a, a single political community so it's so and this is uh, the whole the point of that segment was about polarization but um it was it was interesting in what it said uh but also interesting in what it omitted to say so um it, it used as an example say um how you know, fake news fake news in the you know, period of the coronavirus um, manifested itself in people believing in you know five G tower conspiracy theories and whatnot, and that that's true. Uh, but the flip side of that, which wasn't mentioned, was that um, how social media has been a factor in hyping up the fear of the coronavirus. Uh, that wasn't mentioned. Mm. And, uh, other other issues were it it, it accepted the premise that um you know russia hacked the 2016 election um but um that's that could also be uh categorized as the kind of conspiracy theory that would be spread on social media indeed. platforms uh so uh, i, which indeed, I it was, yeah. which indeed it was yeah so i i
0: just you're not implying that netflix is just repeating the sort of Left liberal consensus. Yeah, but
1: I, I have to say, I think it was. I think this was implicit. I, I, I don't, um, I don't ascribe any malice to the program. I thought mm. it was interesting, and I recommend it. But I just think there was some implicit bias. Um, but and I think the the biggest problem though was that um, it left out. I think the biggest thing, um, uh, although what it what it did, uh, it, um described was very important but what uh how people actually see social media now the problems of social media which uh you know is people malevolent personalities uh who form networks uh to essentially out you know they're the the cancel culture outrage mobs to Mm. uh destroy people's lives destroy careers make people feel um insecure and ill at ease and make them question their own lives um this this is synonymous with social media, but that doesn't get mentioned at all in mm. the documentary, and that that is a yeah. huge omission.
2: To so, the, I haven't watched the documentary yet, yep. but I have read um, uh, one of the core texts yep. in that in that genre, which is surveillance capitalism, um, uh, which. I wrote about it in the IP review. Oh, Scott, I am. August 2019.
0: We'll put a link in the show notes. Professor um, Zuboff, I think it is, from, uh, Zuboff, from um, Shoshana Zuboff from, uh, from Harvard. Yeah, she's interviewed in the show.
2: Uh, as the tech lash, the backlash against big technology companies keeps going for now many, many years. I'm starting to get more sympathetic for the sort of grandiose claims that were made in the early days of social media, which is the democratization that it represents the democratization of the media, the democratization of public and political communication. And it's just the surprise by some people who describe themselves as Democrats, that democracy is messy and even sometimes very ugly when everybody gets to speak because the alternative right the the thing that social media gave us was a way around the gatekeepers the way around a very narrowly defined set of elites in the press who could go on television who could go and write opinion columns in the newspaper who chose who decided that the newspaper would endorse whoever it was for Prime Minister or President and so forth. Social media was suddenly a reversal of that. Now, it turns out that reversing that has had some um, significant consequences, pro and con, it's given us, I think, enormous benefits, but it has had really significant costs. But the push against social media per se, is actually a push against that democratic nature. So when people get together and talk to each other, sometimes they have unapproved ideas. Sometimes those ideas are just batshit insane. Absolutely, I. I but but it's also the case that welcome to democracy. That is what it looks like when the people get together and chat. Uh, about but it I themselves. don't think
1: the people are getting together, in a sense that normal people. Uh, I, I don't think humans. Uh, I don't think the human psyche. I don't think. Our human nature is to be connected in the way that social media connects us. I think there's – and this is keeping aside all the, you know, the, the algorithms and monetization which mm. actually influences how those communications happen. But I just don't th- – I don't think that there's uh, – I don't think that we're adapted to communicate in this way constantly. Uh, and I think, and and there's there's malicious people, there are uh, frankly psychotic people who have taken advantage of these platforms, uh, and there's then there's vulnerable people uh, who have suffered uh, from, and, and of course you know you, you use these things at your own risk, and I understand those arguments, but uh, look, to be honest, I, I think, um, and it actually surprisingly it went this it went as far as to say that there needs to be. Uh, restrictions on social media, going up to and including uh, total prohibition. But uh, frankly, I, I, I think I think we're heading in that direction. I think this is—it's not healthy, um, and I think that we're going to reach a stage where things like uh, exemptions uh, from liability as as publishers, which pl- platforms enjoy, those will become, regardless of the merits of the argument, they will become increasingly untenable. Uh, and I think that. We're going to reach a stage where, where well, we may reach a stage where um, social media is treated more like a drug because of, because of the effects that it has on but, uh, but I
2: just want to spell out the alternative world there. The alternative world is the world that we had until, say, 2009 when um, Facebook and Twitter really gained prominence. Um, uh, the alternative world is where there are gatekeepers, mm. where there um, are public discourses dominated by large companies that can afford to pay the sorts of fines that you're talking about, where they speak as one rather than this incredibly messy, sometimes destructive, but fundamentally democratic system that we have.
0: Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to actually bring this bring this one home, Chris. Sure. I'm, yeah. I'm going to loop this whole show because one oh, of because wow. one of the things about this is, you know. So coming back to the social dimension and the, and the harm um, that's associated with um, social networks, and there is a degree of harm. We certainly know, and particularly with vulnerable populations, and uh, we're all worried about young people. Twelve months ago, you would have seen many, many government agencies who were concerned about the impact of social media on young people. and um, And, you know, all the campaigns to get off screens and be active and and all this kind of thing, uh, the the nanny state was completely invested in combating the nefarious influence of social media. As soon as the Wuhan flu came in, bang, schools are closed. You're not allowed to see your friends. You're locked in your house for 23 hours a day. What the hell do they think these kids are doing?
2: Tell, tell, tell you what, I didn't have a Nintendo Switch in this household yeah. <laughs> months ago. Yeah, we just bought some extra controllers
0: do. for ours. Yeah, exactly. That's why <laughs> the, That's why there's a psycho, um, a doctor on the front page of The Australian today talking about the epidemic of, of adolescent mental health crisis uh, in in bloody Victoria. It's just a, I'll just add that to the list of things that the nanny state and the left were always going on about being super concerned about right up until the moment they decided they weren't concerned. They were super concerned about mm. civil liberties until they decided they weren't. Uh, they were worried about an epidemic of loneliness until they weren't. And and social media is something they were worried about until they weren't. So, um, it, well, they should all be charged with industrial manslaughter then. That's what I think, <laughs> you, Chris. You wrapped it up beautifully, there. Thank you very much. Keep those cards and letters coming in, guys. IPA.org.au. Uh, If you're listening on a podcast platform, this is your chance to give us a five-star review and add some glowing comments. Uh, Anything less than that, don't worry about it. Do someone else's podcast and give them uh, a two-star review. Um, But, yes, you've been listening to Looking Forward, a product of the IPA. Uh, Thank you, as always, to my co-host, Chris Berg. No worries. Very... Great thanks uh, for coming in today, Morgan Begg. Thank you. For your wonderful contribution. Thanks as always to Josh in the control room. We'll be back with more looking forward next week.